Well, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, we are turning our attention now to uh, the scriptures and to our current uh, series of messages that we're considering uh, from the Bible on the second coming of Jesus Christ, a series I've entitled, Jesus is Coming Again. And as we uh, start to lay some groundwork uh, last Sunday with these messages, uh, let me once again just say that the Bible clearly teaches both the first uh, and second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, and this very same Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, walked through Galilee, crucified on Golgotha, buried in a garden tomb, raised again the third day, was seen afterwards over a period of 40 days. He ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives to the Father's right hand, where he is seated and will one day descend to the Mount of Olives at his second coming in power and in great glory. And there's much that surrounds this event of the second coming of Jesus Christ that is yet to be. Uh, I, I believe and, can, and would say that it's the very apex to which all of human history is now moving. In fact, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 tells us that when he comes, every eye will see him. He has not come back yet. It is not a spiritual return. It's not a symbolic return. It is an actual return when every eye will see him. And there's a couple of things that I want to have us think about as we move into this message. Number one, that God has revealed much in his word, the Bible, the scriptures. Uh, first, for the benefit, which includes comfort and encouragement of believers concerning the second coming of Christ. He also has included in his word and revealed much in his word to convict and convince the fallen world of God's existence, his holiness, his sovereignty, his justice, his faithfulness, his plan of salvation through Jesus Christ the Lord. And so secondly, not only has God revealed much in his word, it, it shows us as we study these scriptures carefully that God has a plan a plan that he is bringing to pass even in this very hour. You being here this morning is part of his plan. Did you know that? Your life is part of his plan. And God desires you to understand the plans that he has for you as an individual, for the church, uh, and for uh, this very world. In fact, this plan includes, number one, the church which is where God's focus is today in this present world. Secondly, it includes the Jewish people. And thirdly, it includes the world as a whole. So God's revealed his plan in his word. God has a plan involving the church, the Jewish people, and the world as a whole. And, and thirdly, he's not only revealed this plan, but and this is kind of a summary, God has recorded his plan in various prophecies given in the Old Testament. I think I mentioned to you last week that when the Bible was originally given through the prophets and written, one-fifth of Scripture was prophecy, meaning God was telling his people what was going to happen in the future, whether it was in the immediate future for the people that he was speaking of, or it was a time that was fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ, or even the, the final prophetic time of the second coming of Jesus Christ in the summation of all things under him as head and Lord over all things. And in fact, in reference to Jesus Christ, I may have mentioned last time that there are 333 references to, the, to Jesus Christ prophetically in the Bible. Uh, 224 of those have yet to be fulfilled. And if the first 109 were literal and actual and fulfilled by him perfectly and in God's time, so will the ones that yet to be remained to happen. And in order for us to have a clear understanding of the, the doctrine, and doctrine is the word that means teaching about, uh, if we're to have a clear understanding of the doctrine of last things, we need to recognize first and foremost that God has a distinct plan and program 
for both the church and for Israel, or the Jewish people. Now, these plans are distinct, and, and, and they are uh, different, uh, yet they are one in Christ. So it's not outside of Christ that God is working. It's always in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let's make that clear right at the outset, uh, that, that what God is doing is always in and through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And, and when these differences uh, and these distinctions are not noted, then things prophetically become blurred, mixed, or just plain ignored concerning the things surrounding the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it becomes, I think, confusing to a lot of Christians. It actually can become frustrating uh, when things are vague, unclear, uncertain, unintelligible, and then ultimately become doubtful, where people kind of throw up their hands concerning prophecy and say, what's the point of studying it? It's kind of pointless. Oh, you mean that you're going to ignore one-fifth of God's word because you can't understand it fully or completely. And, and I, I just want to say this at the outset. I don't have it all figured out. I've been studying the scriptures now for many years by God's grace. And prophecy has been one of those areas where I've done a, a lot of study on my own. And I don't have it all figured out. But I'm convinced of this, that what God has said prophetically, even though we look through a glass darkly and dimly right now, on the other side of it, we're going to all look back and say, aha, that's exactly what God meant. That's exactly what he said. But what we can know should help us and should encourage us, should comfort us, and should cause us even to worship our God even more. That he has a plan and a program and a purpose for all things. And he's bringing that to pass even in our day. And let me just say this. Do you really think that God revealed and recorded all of this in his word to be confusing? So that believers sort of throw up their hands or scratch their heads and say, what's the point? Today I want to, to uh, sort of alleviate some of that by once again laying some groundwork uh, and considering with you the distinctions between Israel and the church. And let me just say that this is crucial to our learning about the second coming of Jesus Christ and the events that precede his coming. And if you haven't already caught this, and I know that I've said this before, I'll just say it again. If you want a summation of this in these distinctions, let me just say it this way. The church is not Israel, and Israel is not the church. If you're going to take the scriptures for what it says, you cannot blur those lines and say the church has become, now become Israel. Or in the Old Testament, Israel was the church. No. The church, as we're going to see here in a moment, had a beginning point and a start. So I'm going to read for us the two key passages that we're going to look at. And we'll start with Acts chapter 15. And it's just a brief passage. Acts chapter 15, verses 13 through 18. And then Romans 11, 11 through 15, and 25 through 27. So if you would follow along, please. Acts chapter 15, verse 13. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself or a people for his name. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known from ages or from times of old. And then our second passage, Romans chapter 11, verse 11. Again I ask... Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much more riches will their full blessing bring? 
Now jump down to verse 25. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not become conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will turn ungodliness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. So let's begin here this morning by looking at probably what's most familiar to us. We'll start in reverse order, the church. The church. The church, by, by definition, is comprised of individuals from every nation on earth who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Based on the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, and his bodily resurrection the third day. A summary of this can be found in Luke's gospel. These are the words of Jesus, Luke 24, verse 46. And he told them, This is what is written, The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations, Beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. So the, the gospel message was to go not just to Israel. Though Jesus is a Jewish Messiah, he was not only to be a Jewish Messiah. He is the Savior of the world, Jews and Gentiles alike. Will, will this be realized one day? You, you, you can be sure it will be. Look at Revelation chapter 5. One day around the throne, this will be the scene. And if you're in Christ, you will be participating in this. Verse 8 of Revelation 5, And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one having a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign upon the earth. There's one of the prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. And did you notice it's made up, the church is made up uh, of those who are in Jesus Christ by faith. The church began on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 1. Or excuse me, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 41. Jesus commissioned the church with the preaching of the gospel, gospel proclamation, and making disciples in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. The church is built upon the rock, which is Jesus Christ himself, Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 through 19. Christ in Scripture is defined and connected to the church in this way. 1 Corinthians 3.11, he's the foundation. Ephesians 5.23, he is the head. 1 Peter 2, 6 and 7, he is the cornerstone. And it's all connect, in connection with the church. And one enters the church, as I've said, by faith in Jesus Christ and in response to the gospel call to believe on him and him alone for salvation. And at the moment that you believe, you are born again by the Spirit of God. You become spiritually alive. You are regenerated. And at that moment, all these supernatural things are happening. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, God's Spirit is working. You are made spiritually alive. You're born from above. You're born again. And at that same time, at that very moment, you are baptized into the body of Christ. You are placed into the spiritual and mystical body of Christ, those that Jesus Christ has redeemed by his blood. So the church is not a building. The church is not an edifice. The church is not a structure. The church is a people, a people whom God has redeemed and that you're spiritually alive in Jesus Christ. And when you believe the gospel message concerning Jesus Christ, Scripture tells us that you passed out of death into life. I, I read this to the worship team this morning, a tremendous verse in John's Gospel, chapter 5 and verse 24. I tell you the truth, Jesus is speaking. 
Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life here and now. It's not something you wait for or that you work for or that you hope to be bestowed upon you in the future. You have it now. You will live forever in Jesus Christ. Has eternal life and will not be condemned. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. And if you're in Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You will never have your sins come against you again if you're in Christ. They were dealt with at the cross where he died for the sins of the world. And notice this. This is the supernatural event that happened when you became a believer in Jesus Christ, when you were born from above, and has crossed over from death, spiritual death, to life. You can read about that in more detail, explicit detail, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. How God takes us spiritually dead in our trespasses and sin, and he supernaturally makes us alive in Jesus Christ. Alive to God, alive to the things of God, alive to Christ, that we now have new life in him. We're spiritually alive. And that's why believers are exhorted that we are to walk in this newness of life. Do you know that new spiritual life that you have, that you've been transformed, you've been made new, you're a new creature in Christ. And you're to live that out in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be part of the church. To be connected with the true and living God through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not just a set of beliefs, which are all important, but it's a life that you know that God is alive. And you know Him inwardly. You could see His hand at work in your life. You could see Him at work in the world. You believe what His Word says, and you act upon it in faith. And you see that God is true and all that he has said, and all that he has declared. Now, when you come to uh, Acts chapter 15, our passage that I read for us this morning, the, the question that was happening in the context is, how can a Gentile be saved? Now, we might think that that's an odd question, living 21 centuries past the event. But see, in its beginnings, the church was just Jewish believers, Jewish people who were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, now these pagan Gentiles from all these other nations who were non-Jewish, who weren't even connected to Judaism in any way, were hearing the gospel message and getting saved. And some of the Jewish people were starting to get a little bit antsy. Wait a minute, they're, they're not following the washing of hands and the Jewish regulations and all these things. And yes, we have Jesus, but, but they're, not, they're not doing the, it's the Jewish way. So how can they be saved? Do they got to be circumcised? Do they got to become Jewish first and then become Christian? I mean, what, what of Moses' law do they still have to follow? I mean, do they have to become Jewish first? And so the question was asked here at the Jerusalem Council, how does, a person, how does a Gentile get saved? And they answered that by saying, you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone, if I can give you a summation of that. Now, there were a few things that they asked them to avoid, like fornication, which all believing people should avoid, and then eating things with blood, because God gave so many commands against that in the Old Testament, so as not to offend their Jewish brothers in Christ. But other than that, they don't need to do that in order to be saved. They're saved by the blood of the Lamb, as you and I are today. But notice this. When James is giving his response, he says, after, after Paul talks about how the gospel has been preached and the Gentiles are hearing it and Gentiles are getting saved, and they're excited about that and they're, they're amazed at that, that these pagan Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ, he says here, brothers, listen to me. Simon, which was his, his Hebrew name, Peter, Simon Peter, has described for us, now notice this, how God at first, right here and now, in this present age, showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for his name. This is what God is up to in this present age, known as the church age, or the age of grace. The gospel message is going out from believing people, from this church, from missionaries, from international workers, from you sharing your faith with one another, with those around you. The gospel is going out to all the nations because God, through the gospel, is calling people to faith in Jesus Christ with a call that when that call is responded to when people repent of sin, when they realize Christ alone as Savior, they respond to that call and they now become a believer by faith in Jesus Christ. And the word church, interestingly, means 
Two Greek words, ek and kaleo, out of and call. We are called out of an unbelieving world into the body of Christ. We're called out of the world as followers of Jesus Christ. That is what the word church means. A called out assembly. If you're here this morning and you're in Jesus Christ, you're a member of the church. You know, I mentioned actual membership in this local body. But if you're in Christ, you're already a member of the universal church, those whom God has redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. So the church is a call-out assembly. And what God is doing in this present age is calling out through the gospel a people for his name from among the Gentiles. We already looked at Revelation chapter 5. Will there be success in every nation, tribe, and tongue, and language being before the throne? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because God had said it would be so. And you have part in that. That's part of your work even now in being a proclaimer of Jesus Christ and making the gospel known. So let me ask you, are you part of God's church this morning? Not part of necessarily this local body, but are you part of the body of Christ? Have you been born again by the Spirit of God? Have you been redeemed? Are you trusting Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? And then are you participating in his worldwide plan of making his gospel known to the ends of the earth? through financial support, through prayer, through going, through witnessing yourself to your neighbors, your friends, your families, your loved ones, those around you, those you encounter on the street, those you are building relationships with. Are you making Christ known in this present age of grace? And God is presently, as I said, taking out from among the Gentiles, which are, by the way, Jewish people are those, we'll see here in a moment, are the Old Testament people of God. If you were not Jewish, you were Gentile. So that includes all of us, unless you have a Jewish heritage. And God is calling out from the Gentiles a people for his name in this present church age. But notice, James doesn't end there in his declaration. He says this, verse 15, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. And he's quoting Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. He says, after this, After what? After the church age, after the age of grace, when the church completes its purpose, its plan from God, its ministry, its work, after this, I will return. Who will return? The Lord. And notice this, and rebuild David's tent. That's the dynasty of David. Well, David was a king in Israel many, many years ago, thousand years before Christ. Why is he talking about David? Well, as you know, Jesus is a descendant of David. God made promises to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he was going to raise up one of his sons to sit on a throne that would last for just a little while. You got it. Forever. In fact, in Luke's gospel, when the angel was talking about Jesus, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. But that hasn't happened yet. So he's coming back and he's going to rebuild the dynasty of David as David's greater son sitting on the throne. And its ruins I will rebuild and restore it. He's going to restore the Old Testament people Israel to himself in the future. And they are going to then fulfill the original purpose that he had for them to be the head of nations, to be a witness for the true and living God that, notice this, the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been made known from ages or long ago. God does this. God does this. So, he says here, there's coming a day when the Lord will return. Lord, the Lord makes these things known. He does these things for the universal glory and praise of his name. When that happens, Psalm 117 will become reality. So will Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 14. 2 and verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That day has not happened yet. It is yet to be.
Well, that is the church. That is the church. Well, what about Israel? Well, let's turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Our second passage for this morning. Now, let me just give you a little bit of a definition, if I may, of, of, of Israel. Israel is God's covenant people in the Old Testament. They, descended, they are descendants from Abraham, the first man that God called directly and specifically out of the world, out of Ur the Chaldees, by the way. And did you notice that, that in Israel, in Abraham, in the people of the Old Testament, you have somewhat of a picture and a parallel to believers coming to faith in the true and living God. Now, just because there is a parallel doesn't mean that they are exactly the same. Do you follow me? Do you follow me? Abraham was called out, and by faith, Abraham believed God and acted upon it. And he actually becomes, can I put this reverently, he becomes the poster child, Abraham, of people who take God and his word and believe him and are justified by faith. Paul talks about that in Romans. He also talks about it again in Galatians as well. That Abraham becomes the, the prototype of everyone who hears the word of God, believes what he says in his heart, believes God, and then acts upon it in faith. So there was Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Reuben through whatever, Dan, I think, is the last one. You know. Benjamin, excuse me, Joseph and then Benjamin. I should know that. <laughs> 12 sons who became first tribes, then a people, then a nation. And notice this, God promised to Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob, then to the 12 tribes, then to the whole nation, promises concerning uh, descendants, a land, blessings, a king, and a Messiah who would be the Savior. And these were all given to them by covenant, by covenant, which is an, a divine agreement used in Scripture between God and individuals. But the amazing thing about God's covenants are this that God is the one who fulfills them. Both ends of the responsibility he fulfills. And he does so through his believing people as they believe and trust him. Now, there are responsibilities under a covenant. Don't get me wrong. But these covenants were all eternal. Let me give you uh, these, these uh, in order again. Descendants, land, blessing, a king, and a messiah. Here's some verses. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 7, Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, and Isaiah 53. That will give you support of all these covenants that God has made with his people Israel. And they are God's chosen people. And did you know that God chose them? Why? Because they were so great? Because they were so grand? Because they were so good? Because they impressed him somehow? Was that why God chose the Jewish people? No. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7 with me. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Now, wait a minute. Doesn't that sound like New Testament words? <laughs> And New Testament theology, and new, yes, it is. But you see, God has two groups of chosen people. Old Testament Israel and the church. And they're distinct. Now, notice this. Verse 7 continues. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for the, you were the fewest of all. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out of, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations to those who love and keep his commandments. He'll fulfill his covenant promises, but you have to respond in faith and love back towards him. 
The same is true with the gospel message. God in the gospel through Jesus Christ offers you an overture of love, of forgiveness, of grace, of mercy, but you have to come to him in faith and trust him. You have to respond to that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not face condemnation, but should have everlasting life. But you have to believe. You have to respond in faith to what God has said. Now notice, there's also things that can be a consequence. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. There will be judgment for those who do not respond to God in faith and in submission to him. So God has his covenant people. Now, Israel's distinct purposes, let me, let me say this. Here's some, several of them. They were to be a holy people, which means they were to be set apart. They were to be distinct. And weren't they distinct from all the other nations in the Old Testament? When you read your Old Testament, that's what they were supposed to be. See, the problem was that in the history of Israel, like so many of us, they didn't get very far before they were failing, messing up, making wrong choices, choosing their own way, being stubborn, being stiff-necked, being rebellious, being pig-headed, whatever you want to fill in there as a, as a descriptive term, rebellious towards God. But they were to be a holy people set apart, and God did set them apart. And he says, to show your distinctiveness, this is why I'm giving you all these different laws. Why do you think all those laws of separation with food and clothing and how they did things were so different from everything around the world around them? Well, number one, that law gave them protection because now that you study some of those things, you realize God was protecting them from a lot of the, the, the diseases, a lot of the, the, the plagues, a lot of the, the, the corruption that was in the world at the time. And he set them apart. And if they would have obeyed, if they would have in faith followed him, if their hearts would have been transformed and they would have been yielded fully to him, the fullness of his blessing would have come. That's what he promised them from the beginning. But their whole history is one of rebellion from day one. From day one. But he gave them, he set them apart as his people. He used them to communicate the scriptures to us. As I said, one of these days I'm going to preach a series of messages on the book of books, and we'll have to talk about how the Jewish people went through the whole process of communicating and recording the scriptures to make sure that they were, they were accurate in what they did. But God, through the nation of Israel, gave us the scriptures, gave us the Old Testament. Thirdly, through, through the nation of Israel, they were to be a witness to the true and living God. God alludes to that over and over again in the Old Testament. You're to bear witness to Jehovah, the true and living God, the one we sang about this morning. And you're probably wondering, why are we singing Jewish songs? Well, now you know. It's tied in with the message. Hopefully you made that connection. Hopefully you make the connection every week with the music and what you're hearing this morning. It's meant to go together, so I hope you know that. And then, uh, fourthly, uh, they are the nation from which the Messiah would come the nation from which the Messiah comes. Now, if you look at Romans chapter 9 with me real quick, just real quick, Romans chapter 9. Now, let me just say this as you're turning there or looking it up on your device. Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul is answering the question, if Israel, national Israel, Jewish people have been a failure in their history and that's just the history they have. Read Acts chapter 7 and Stephen's defense of Jesus Christ. He reviews their history, and it's one failure after another to the point that he says, you even rejected Messiah that God sent you, and they couldn't stand it and stoned him to death. So the question that Paul's answering in the minds of his readers here in Rome is, well, what about the Jewish people? I mean, God made some pretty... pretty Tremendous promises and covenants in the Old Testament. Does that mean he's through with Israel? Is Israel done? Is he now replacing Israel with the church? And in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul's answer to that is God forbid. In fact, let me read the first couple verses of Romans chapter 9 to, get, to show you this. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Verse 3, for I wish I myself were cursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul says, I wish it was possible that somehow if, if I could be 
cursed, it could somehow bring my, my, my fellow Jewish brothers along in their faith that they would believe and receive Christ. And notice this, he says, theirs is the adoption of sons, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. These were all the privileges that they had as a people. But even with all that, they as a nation rejected him. And only a remnant of Israel really turned to, to God in Jesus Christ and believed on him. So the question he's answering in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is to say, has God set aside Israel? Are, are they finished in God's program and plans? No, absolutely not. He says, God forbid. And God has a plan and a future for Israel, the Jewish people. Israel will one day, in the future, be redeemed by Jesus Christ and restored to favor with God and inherit the land of promise forever. That's God's, a summation of God's program for Israel, his plans for them with things to come. Because notice this, verse 11, the verses that we read. Again, I asked, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. That's that phrase, God forbid. Rather, now notice this, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. See, when the Jewish nation rejected the gospel, what did the Apostle Paul say, that great missionary? You judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life? I'm shaking the dust off of myself. I've, I'm clean. I've told you what I need to tell you. You don't want eternal life? I'm turning my attention to the Gentiles. And you know what? They listened. They responded. You're an example of that this morning, being in Christ. You responded to the gospel call. Why? Was it because, again, you were so great, you were so good, you accomplished something? No, it's the grace of God, the love of God in your life for you as an individual through Jesus Christ. Now, notice this. He says, but if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? Notice that. Their fullness. What fullness? There's, there's a future he's talking about. That hasn't happened. You can't say that the remnant of Jewish people that trusted Christ in that first century and to date is the fullness of God bringing in his people, his believing people, into the church. In fact, he goes on, I'm talking to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. You know what God's doing? He's trying to make the Jewish people envious of what he should, they should see in the church and say, how come these people are connected to a true and living God and it just seems like ritual and right to us? It ought to move them to want to know Christ. And notice this. He continues, verse 15, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, how? Through what they did? No, what through Christ has done. He is our reconciliation, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. He's our reconciliation. What will their acceptance be? What? A future acceptance of Messiah, but life from the dead. And in other words, Paul is saying, you haven't seen anything yet of what God's going to do when Israel comes to faith in Jesus Christ. So the question has to be asked, when? When's that going to happen? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at uh, chapter 11 with me, the, the verses that we read. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not become conceited. He's writing to believers. Now, the mystery was this. It's what J James alluded to in Acts. That God is now at this present time calling out from among the Gentiles a people for his name. 
Because when you go back and study the Old Testament, you will see that not only did God prophesy a suffering Messiah, he also prophesied a reigning king. And in their minds, they just saw either two Messiahs, which they were mistaken, or somehow there was going to, it was all going to just be rolled into one. But see, the problem that they didn't understand is that the Old Testament does not fully reveal, and that's why that term mystery is used. It means a truth that was not previously revealed or fully made known is this, that, that after the Jewish people rejected Christ and the gospel now turns to the Gentile world where God is calling out from among the Gentiles a people for himself. That is a mystery, meaning it was unknown. It is parenthetical in God's plan for what he has planned for Israel. Now let me just say this on a side note because we'll be probably talking about Israel from time to time in this series. This does not mean that everything that the Jewish nation does today is blessed of God. They're in that land. They're gathered in unbelief. They're not seeking the true and living God. So that does not sanction everything they do is that it's God-ordained. But yet we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, the Bible tells us. And we're to support Israel through prayer and hopefully that they come to know Christ even in this church age. So when is this going to happen? Look, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not become conceited. He just talked about this, read this earlier in the chapter. Don't boast against the roots. Don't boast against the roots. You're, you're grafted into what God is doing. Israel is the olive tree that he planted. So don't boast against those roots. And I think sometimes if we're not careful in our theology where we ignore or we erase Israel, we're boasting against the roots. Israel has experienced a hardening in part. Now, when there's a heart is hardened, it's unresponsive to the gospel. And the more that you, you reject, the more that you reject, the more your heart becomes hardened. And they've experienced a hardening in part, which means that there are some Jewish people that are coming to faith in Christ. Notice this. It continues, until... How long is this hardening going to last? How long is this in part hardening going to last? Until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Until God says... At some point when he says, you know what? That's the last Gentile that I'm going to save and make a part of the church. Now, Gentiles can still be saved after that. They just won't be part of the church. Maybe I lost you there. We'll, we'll explain that a little bit further as we get onto this. But, you know, God has more than just the church as saved people. He had saved people in the Old Testament. He had saved people before Abraham, before any covenant was enacted. He will have saved people after the church exits this world. He will have saved people after Israel comes to faith in Jesus Christ. He is going to save others of the Gentile world when the kingdom comes. And we'll explore that further in detail down the road. Now notice this. He says, verse 26, underline this in your Bible so that you're not missing this. And so all Israel will be saved. Now, when he says all Israel, he doesn't mean every single Jew that's ever been born, okay? So it's not universalism for the Jews. Do not make that mistake. What he means is all Israel is going to be saved so that it becomes a nation representative of all of them, that enough of them, so many of them, all of them have come to faith in Christ. Notice this, the deliverer will come from Zion. Do you know that Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives? You know where he's coming back, according to Zechariah? The Mount of Olives. Zion. The deliverer comes on Zion. He will turn ungodliness away from Jacob. Now, this is talking about future things. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. You say, but they're not even seeking him. They've rejected him for 2,000 plus years. They're not interested in Messiah. I think in one way, the salvation of Israel spiritually is going to say, say, you know what? You never could do it on your own. I'm going to show you what I can do as God. I'm the one that saves. And the same was true in your life and in mine if you're in Christ. We weren't seeking God. God's seeking us. Salvation is his gift. It's what he does supernaturally. When at the second coming of Christ, and notice this, I have here in my notes, when is it going to happen? At the second coming of Christ, 
with a preceding time which will drive them to Messiah. With a preceding time that leads up to his second coming that will drive them to the Messiah. We'll see that. Verse 28, notice this. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs or their forefathers. They're your enemies because they don't receive the gospel, but they're still beloved of the Lord. Notice this verse. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He didn't make these promises to somehow later on down the road say, well, you know what, you've blown it too much. I'm just going to make them null and void. Aren't you glad that he doesn't do that for you and me? And he made promises to Israel that are just for Israel, and he intends to keep every single one of them. Even even in the midst of their stubbornness and rebellion, God's going to say, I'm going to make it happen. And you know why he's going to do it? The prophets talk about them being a stubborn people. A stubborn people. You know why I'm going to do it? I'm going to do it for the sake of my name that you've profaned among the nations, the scripture says. I'm going to do it for my own name's sake so that the people can't say, well, they were so bad, God himself couldn't save this people and nation. God himself couldn't bring to pass what he had promised. They're just so bad. And that, again, becomes an illustration of us. There is nobody beyond the grace of God, top side of this earth. So no matter what you've done, God will give you grace and mercy and forgiveness. And notice this. That's what Paul says here. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, now have received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too now may receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he might have mercy on them all. On them all. So why does God do this? Because God keeps his promises. Why does God do this? Because God is a merciful God. Now, what should God's plan do for us? Let this, I'll wrap this up. What should God's plan do for us? I know I'm just laying groundwork here these two Sundays before we get into things to come. But number one, it should remind us God's will, his plans, will be done. Number two, knowing this, God's plan gives us hope. This world is not out of God's control. It's out of our control. Tune into any media, you'll see that. This world is out of control. But it's not out of God's control. Thirdly, it ought to motivate us, each of us, to want to witness for Christ. The time is getting short. The time is at hand. We want to bring as many people along as we can as God gives us opportunity. And fourthly, it ought to confirm to our hearts that God's word is true. It's trustworthy. One of the unique features of the scripture is that the prophecies that have been given have been fulfilled in perfect, exact detail down to the very word because God keeps his promises. And his word is true It's truth and it's trustworthy. You can trust what God has said, not just concerning prophecy, but everything he has said. Let God be true and every man a liar. God's word is truth. And and fifthly, it ought to cause us to to long for the return of Christ. We ought to long for his coming. We ought to be like John at the end of Revelation when he saw all those things, the horrors and the glory. He said, come, Lord Jesus, come. I pray that in addition to you praying for revival of your own hearts and revival of the church, you're praying, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. And then also it ought to prepare us so that we're ready when he comes, that we're about the master's business, that we're not wasting our time on things that are temporary, things that are passing away, things that are going to turn to rust and dust, but that we're seeking things that are eternal and that we're ready when he comes. And then finally, it ought to move us to praise and worship of God. It ought to move us to worship and praise of God. You know, Paul did this. You know, as he concluded Romans chapter 11, have you read these words lately? Verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And, and Paul bursts out into worship and praise. As Abe Sandler Jr. pointed out to me, he says, you know why he did that? You know why he bursts out into praise at this point in the letter? Because he just realized that from Romans 1 through Romans chapter 11, he just put out the whole plan and purpose of God in salvation for Jew and Gentile alike. And it overwhelmed him. And it just caused him to worship God all the more. And that's what I hope that this study of prophecy does for us. It doesn't just sort of tickle our ears. But that we worship God and we fall on our faces all the more and worship him for the great and mighty and sovereign God that he truly is through his son, Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the promises of your word, the covenants of your word. Thank you, Father, that you are the true and living God. And I know, Father, that, that there is a lot for us to, to pray over, to ponder, to study on our own in connection with these things. And I pray that, Lord, our hearts will be stirred to dig into your word not just for the sake of gaining knowledge, but for the sake of knowing you better. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And Lord, it is our prayer that as we go forward in these considerations from your word, that you will stir our hearts deeply to worship, to hope, to joy, to anticipation, to prayer, to surrender, to holiness, to witness all the things that should be true of us as your believing people, but, oh God, in a greater measure within our lives and within our hearts. Oh God, would you revive me? Would you revive us, your people? Would you continue to stir us and draw us to Christ in these days? And while there are dark days, there are difficult days, there are uncertain days, may our hope be anchored in the person and work of Jesus Christ and in the promises that you've made to us in him. And may we realize, Father, that you can be trusted for all things with our very life's breath, which we offer back to you, O God. And we ask this in Jesus' name.